Welcome to Hot Almighty, where we talk about the American harvest. This is the podcast about North and Southeastern American Indian food ways. What y'all cooking? I'm your host, Aja. And I'm your host, Damon. And today we are talking to Seth. Seth, thank you so much for being on the show and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, man, I'm just a normal Chicago boy who decided to put that Mississippi back in their mouth. You know what I'm saying? Break I mean, that down. What, that mean? Yeah, what that mean? See, people forget that they be looking at uh, Mississippi and Alabama like they, you know what I mean? All they see is the slavery and what happened there in the 1800s. But they don't understand why it was so important for the colonizers to take Mississippi and Alabama. If you look right now to keep it a buck, they didn't even really do nothing with it when they got it. They didn't know what to do with it. They just needed it because Mississippi and Alabama was the last of true free Indian territory. When you look at what happened in the Carolinas and Virginia, if you look at the history, just like I was saying in Mississippi part two, a lot of the tribes ended up coming to Mississippi and Alabama. Alabama and you know the 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 Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek and was signed in Mississippi and you get the beginning of the uh, Trail of Tears there so when you talking about true Indian history if you talking about the last frontier of us being free it was Mississippi period okay so I gotta ask you this because I don't know it's like an ancestor just came to me and was like ask this question I'll ask this question did your grandparents or great-grandparents have a Mississippi jacket when they came to Chicago? Like, were they a part of a Mississippi club? Man, I'm going to keep it a buck with you. My grandfather, he, he kind of, they told him he had to leave. He was a mean guy. He was, you know, I'm not going to get into the family stories, but uh, Grandpa had a habit of throwing the knives at people and shooting at people. So the sheriff told him if he didn't get out of town, he, he was going to have a problem. So... You know what I'm talking about? That's what led Grandpa to, uh, to Chicago. And Grandma, you know what I mean? She came up there for the love with my grandfather. So, you know, I can't tell you what they wore, but they came out of Mississippi and went to um, the projects in Chicago. And, you know, my grandfather was a real hard worker and my grandmother. Um, they they lived in the projects until they could afford their first house. And let's, let's go into it, man. Um, Man, see, y'all be touching. I told you, this is my heart <laughs> that I talk with, bro. This is, um, they, they was in the projects, and my grandfather would tell me, this is what he told me. He told me he remember when the white folks would, you know, they would hold their hands across Western, off um, like 83rd and Western over there by uh, Evergreen and uh, by Beverly off of 95th to not let the black people move over there. So it was real difficult for us to get out of those projects and move to the South side. I don't know the West side story, but they didn't want us on the South side. You know what I mean? My grandparents was like, I think the second or third black family on that block. And at that point we was looking for each other. You know what I'm saying? So it, it was a lot of families that knew each other from the SIP of from Alabama that um you get to Chicago you know, you find yourself in the same living conditions and then such and such, you know, what I mean, Mr. Lankford would move and get him a house and then grandpa would, you know, move over there where they were. So a lot of what happened was is families following each other. And the same thing happened with my grandfather's brothers. Like they always considered my grandfather like the uh, black sheep of the family, but they all follow him 
to Illinois when he came to Illinois. They moved to the suburbs, but I came up in the city. You know what I'm saying? So they saw what my grandfather did and they, I guess, improved on the format by what they thought was right at the time by moving to the suburbs. But me and mine, we always been city boys. Okay, so you visited Mississippi every summer. How did visiting Shibota, Mississippi or Shibuta, Mississippi every summer inform how you think and live today? Oh, man, it was a different way of life. You know, if you remember back then, uh, uh, air conditioner was a luxury item. You was just hot. So, <laughs> you know, you, you down there. First off, we got to talk about that red dirt. So you look down and you know you ain't in the city. You know, you ain't got no concrete to this day. It's still red dirt down there in Shibuta. You know what I mean? And, you know, you got them big flying bugs. And, you know, it, it's, it's just rural. And I remember my um, auntie was the last one to move off of the land in Shibuta, off of the land we actually had that my great grandfather left him. So, um, you know, she had pigs. I remember me and my cousins would be chasing behind the pigs, trying to catch them. God forbid when we were slipping and falling in. And, you know, the, and it was no large scale grocery stores. So if you didn't have animals, you had to drive to the meat market and, you know, everybody grew their own vegetables. So, you know, you had the collard greens, you had the tomatoes, you had the staples of the food and they listened to country music. So, you know, coming from Chicago, we in the city like, hola, hola, hey, you know what I'm saying? We, we doing our thing up there and, and you get get down to Mississippi and you know things were just moving a little slower like guitars you know what I'm saying just sitting on the porch talking you know what I'm saying got your little um, what was that crown royal or whatever they drinking on you know frying the fish slow or barbecuing it was a slower way of life and you know it, it was just family you know yeah so let me ask you this though because you, you kind of went into the differences that was going to be my question but to expand on that what really changed when you would come back home, you know, to Chicago and that home, you know what I'm saying? Um, what would happen that you would notice that would be different or what differences stood out, I guess, you know what I'm saying, when you were actually back in Chicago? City comforts, man. It's, it's always been, the city's always been about availability of things. Like, even all the way down to the education. Like, I got a cousin that's the exact same age as me. And, you know, like literally he's like maybe one month younger than me and our lives have been so different because him, he was raised in Shibuta and the schools ain't no colleges right now. I don't, they used to have a high school out there. I don't think there's a high school or elementary school in Shibuta right now. So, you know, for him, you know, the only way he was able to find any you know what I'm saying? Upward mobility in life was a military. Whereas for me, you in the city, you got colleges, you got high schools, you got public transportation. If you ain't got something in your neighborhood, you can walk and, you know, hop on the bus and get where you need to go. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's the city has always been convenience. You know, if you ask me the people, like at that time, you only one generation away from the country. So we carried our ways like everybody. I swear to God, you could walk out your back door because, you know, everybody got a little backyard. You got your little third of an acre or whatever. If, if, I know it's not even that much, but you, everybody got their garden in the back. And that was kind of like how the, 
the the grandfathers, I guess that was a thing where you know, look at my tomatoes. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> and you could walk out the back door and you could see everybody yard and everybody had a garden in their backyard. And some people had chickens and other things, but a lot of times, like you know, that died off. But everybody kept the habit of growing your own vegetables until very recent. No doubt. Now, see, what you saying reminds me of me growing up in Harlem, right? Now, you know, and the difference was, like, <laughs> nobody had no no yards, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it was way, way, way more bricks. So we didn't have that, but I did, you know, like, there was a time before my grandma uh, passed away. This might have been, like, towards the 90s. They started doing a little program. They started taking, like, all the abandoned lots and having, like, you know, people farming there. So my aunt... I mean, not probably my, my grandmother, she started doing that. But yeah, like the, the, the ways though, that's one thing I would see that even though, you know, it, it was a whole different environment. And when I would go down to down South as, as a young kid, I would just see how, you know, you, you know, the pace was so much slower. People were just, you know, more friendlier. All those things you would just notice um, on a surface level, you know, I notice a lot more now, you know, that I'm a lot older and I'm really, really just able to understand, you know, how much, you know, we've been misrepresented and history been misrepresented. I, I kind of really appreciate the South even more, you know, but I, I, I saw a beauty in it. And like you mentioned, that convenience in the North, it was always just, you know, like you said, it created the hustle and bustle. Everything is at your fingertips. But I feel like it also created a complacency that that's why you see a lot of those communities, they just disintegrated. You feel me? Like, at least I can speak for Harlem, you know what I'm saying? Like, definitely it's not the same. And, you know, I hear people talk about Chicago, you know, you can get into it a little bit more. But, yeah, it's just not the same, you know? Yeah, not at all, man. Yeah, so, Seth, now you mentioned a little bit earlier with your grandfather and the knives and stuff. And it made me think about my thought process because my people from Mississippi as well, people have this image of Chicago and Chicago winds and the roughness that comes with Chicago. But I think a lot of that roughness comes from Mississippi. Just looking at my own family <laughs> history because they'll cut somebody with a bottle or a knife. It don't really matter. Your ass is going to get cut. Um, but what are some things you wish people understood about Mississippi culture? You, you hit it right on the head, sister. It's all us. Like the fishing, like even to this day, if you know, like out towards uh, East Chicago and them southeastern suburbs, they still fish. They still fish in them little lakes and, you know, them rivers and creeks back there. The fishing is us. The horse riding is us. The fish fries is us. The barbecue, the watermelon. Nobody brought those things to us. They came here and we showed them how to do it. We already had our towns. We already had our roads with the traces. We already had our communities all the way up. And if you look, it makes sense. Like literally all the way from Mississippi to Michigan, like that a lot, so much of our family went that way because before colonialism, we was related to them people. You know what I mean? They took, but what they did that was real slick was they took everything that was good about our culture and they called it American to separate it from the fact that they got it from us. But they still not, 
they're still doing it right now, but they're not doing it the right way. You know, if you look at early Hollywood, Cowboys and Indians, like on our side, we admitted we the Indians, but another part that like with the Buffalo Soldiers and all that, that a lot of people are not really willing to admit to is we were the Cowboys and the Indians. To this day, if you look in Florida, Texas, Louisiana, what them country boys doing? They riding horses. My yeah. gra- my grandmother rode horses. I, I still got pictures of my grandmother and my aunties with, with them fishing when I was a little kid and riding horses when I was a little kid. That's who we are. So it's more so like when we got to the city, the culture transformed. Like my grandfather wasn't in the arrows. He was a shooter. Like I remember when I was a little kid, somebody tried to break into his Buick and he didn't call the police. He went down to the hallway of the building and he cut off the, like, unscrewed the light bulb in the hallway, and he cracked the door with his 32. That's that's That was my favorite pistol, because my grandfather kept him a 32, a, a 32 Lorser. And he shot his bullet right past that boy ear. And he, he was like, the next one ain't going to miss. Like, I still got his um hunting rifle. I pulled it out. Like, uh, I kept it in my closet, like, five years ago. And um, that thing looked brand new. He had it oiled up and everything. You know what I mean? Like, from the horse, like, all of that. That's our culture. Well, you, you know, for us to travel, we had to use those type of, you know, we had to use the horse to be able to travel. And, you know, I'm starting to see a lot of a lot of things showing that, you know, the horse was here already because people like to say that the Spanish brought the horse. So I'm starting to see a lot more things contrary to that. But you mentioned the trace, the traces and stuff like that. So it made me think about Natchez Trace and yeah. some of the stuff I've been reading up on about like the the PD Indians, the Catawba Indians, their interactions on the Natchez Trace. So I'm just, you know, um, for the audience, you know, me and um, Sec, you know what I'm saying? We related on the D's line. And, you know, we found that out, you know, really just I saw his name was D's. I was like, hold on, <laughs> you feel me? Like, who, you know, I just started asking genealogy questions from there. And um, you find out, you know, that we got the same grandparent. So I'll let you kind of get into it. You, you feel me? Um, I guess any perspective you, you have on, well, you know, one that's going to be about the Scot- Scottish-Irish and, you know what I'm saying, but also how that connects with the American Indian lineage as well. So just, you know, just go, before I go into my next question. Oh, oh man, you, you don't hit me with the pop question. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but real quick uh, on that horse side, right? Just to, to help you with that one, they brought the Spanish horses over here, but we already had colts over here. And if you, matter of fact, um, Aja, you in that Okla Hanali book, in that book, if you hear him, he was talking about the chalk horses. The, the Choctaw had horses that wasn't Spanish colts, and they actually told the Spanish they didn't need their horses. The the horses that's here now is actually crossbreeds between that Spanish horse and the um colts. The colts was like bigger and heavier. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But listen, they even kept the horse culture is still kept alive here. I'm just 30 minutes away from Chicago. I live in Gary, Indiana now, and there are a lot of ranches run by mm-hmm. American Indians who identify as black. You can ride down the street in some parts of Gary and people riding riding horses like like this is Philly <laughs> or something. So yeah, we've definitely kept that culture alive. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's going to come back because that's who we are. 
a lot of this is going to fall away. And I don't think it's going to be easy on some people. And that's why I think it's so important for us to bring them back into the understanding of who we are is I think that if, cause everybody want the brand new car and the $2,000 belt, but if they can look up and say, man, that $2,000 is sure about your family food for a long time. When times get hard and just get them back to thinking like, man, put it in a freezer box, man. Don't put that on your waist. You know, it's, we got to get back to those ways, but those are questions. No, no, you, you straight. Um, I reiterate. I reiterate the question. Um, it's basically just oh the D side. Yeah, with the D's, with the migrations, like you know what I'm saying. You mentioned the, the Natchez Trace, so I kind of didn't want to like zoom past that. You feel me? Like I think that's important. You feel me? I think that's really important. So I just wanted to kind of touch on those topics. I figured that was a good opportunity. You know, you had mentioned that. And I, I know about again like certain interactions with the Catawba, with the PD, with, um, you know what I'm saying, with the National Indians on the trace. So, you know, a lot of that connect even with the Ds because my Ds family is coming out of PD, even though, you know, again, you, like like I said, I think you can elaborate on a little bit more. I'll, I'll let you elaborate. You know, now, one thing about my D side is my father didn't raise me. We talk more now. And you know, I you know, but my father, I re- my mother's family raised me, and that's why I'm so close to my grandfather, and my grandmother, because that's who really raised me. But um, on that D side, the thing about it is, you know, they came over here from uh, Ireland, and yeah. if you want to do it, we could do it, bro. Um, that's what you, we hit for. <laughs> you 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 know those deces are black. Because even in Carter G. Woodson's book, he has Deces listed as Negro slave owners, free Negroes in the Carolinas. Because you'll look at it and you see Manuel Deese coming here from Ireland and the immediate assumption is that this is a white man, but he's not white. And then, like, I don't know if I said it already, but you know, Creek of D's too. And this another girl, I don't want to say her name, and she told me she got Deese lineages. The thing about it is in the 1600s, um, the, those Irish, Welsh, and all them people, when they came here, they all, under various circumstances, some good, some bad, married into Indian families. So the question really becomes, which side of the family was you raised on? You know what I'm talking about? Like, on your side, like, obviously, there was a, a Irish man that came into a Tuscarora family. And on Creek side, there was an Irish man who came into, Irish-Scottish, you know, but I, I say Irish. Irish man that came into the Creek family and to keep it a buck on my mother's side both her mother and her father are Indian like literally so my Irish comes way more recent that come from my daddy you know what I'm saying and, you know my, my mother said that she was looking for a particular type of man she found him but you see that like even my cousin I don't, well let's say it, he, he's a McClure or like um my other homie he uh a McSwine and my other homie, he's um a Macintosh. Like, it is something about these Scottish, Irish, and Indians. It's something about why, you know what I'm saying? Why we were so comfortable with letting them in our people. I don't know if we thought they was handsome or what. You know what I'm saying? But, but them, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? But I'm seeing that the trade, there was a long standing, the trade was going on for a long time. I, I think, you know, just culturally, it was like, it was just the, the those Indians, like you mentioned, the Creek, right? You mentioned, you know, if you talk about Tuscarora, right? Mm-hmm. Right. They they took certain stances at certain times that would align themselves with with the Indians. Group. Yep. 
Yeah, and what it is is that, you know, certain loyalties, you feel me? And like, when I start reading about, let's say like, when I start reading about like the Lost Colony, right? Something they'll talk about like Hamilton McMillan, right? You feel me? Mm -hmm. he's, he's there at this time and he's writing about um, the Croatans and he's talking about how they always, uh, you know, like, they, they, like how proud they are of their English lineage, you feel me? Like, mm -hmm. like, like that was a, a thing of pride, you feel me? But you have to look at how history is being framed and with a lot of the things culturally, right? With the whole Pan-African movement, right? How can somebody run around talking about you got pride in your English lineage, you feel me? Look at the, the type of shit people get right now, you feel me? You, mm -hmm. you, me, me and you talk about we got this lineage, some people is all, all, already like red hot, <laughs> you feel me? Mm -hmm. Just we, we, they we don't know, bro. They don't even, you know, um, be proud of anything like this. You know what I'm saying? But go ahead, brother. You got. It. They don't know that there was a genocide over there. It was a genocide in uh, Scotland and Ireland against the native Gaelic and Celtic people, and that's how yeah. a lot of them ended up. Like, so when when they say Irish and Scottish criminals, the question is: is under like think about what we're going through right now. Right, you like they literally in it's documented history that they went in there and they took them people land and made them homeless and then made them criminals because they was homeless and that's how a lot of them people ended up over here. So they had no loyalty to the British establishment. You understand? So it makes sense that when they got over here, they was like, "Forget them people. I'm gonna come be with y'all." <laughs> and, then, and then the spiritual practices because a lot of times they were ostracized because of the spiritual practices um, that they were trying to um, hold on to in Ireland and um, so that and that was one of the connections with the indigenous people here and aren't they matrilineal the Scottish yes but weren't they back so. then yeah especially the Gaelic you talking about the Gaelic and Gaelic that's, yeah that's, yeah the Gaelic like they like yeah they pretty much exterminated exterminated them and people talk about that in Ireland, like today, you feel me? So it's like, if you think about those are the lines and the people that they were sending, um, as well as others that they really did exterminate, you feel me? There's other people they don't talk about, you feel me? I don't hear people even talk about these Pictish people. I don't hear people talk about these Pictish people, you feel me? But I see it a lot on them, you know what I'm saying? I was researching John White um, paintings not, not too long ago. And he had some interesting drawings of these um, pictures, people. You feel me? So <laughs> I wonder what happens to them. And that's the so, same. Yeah. That's the same yeah. thing they're doing to us. That's the same thing they're doing to Mississippi and Alabama culture. And that's it's a reason they're doing that. You know what I'm? They're not doing that to the Plains Indians. They're doing that to us from Mississippi and Alabama, and you know that territory. You know, so right. it's really important for us to see that correlation. And because, Damon, because we had a history, we can see what happened in Ireland and Scotland and see the story on replay over here. Yeah, it definitely replays over here. You feel me? It's too connected. That's why, you know, I think we got to highlight it so that people don't try to run away from it because that's like running away from the truth. You feel me? Um sure. Let me ask you this. Let's take it back to Chicago. So, how did Chicago and how did growing up in Chicago inform your Indian identity? A lot of people from Chicago, like we were saying, came from Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. So, we had a lot of the same ways up until like the late 90s when you got the like, it was pretty much all us where I was from and Puerto Ricans. 
which is the other group of people that people don't talk about. Up until like the late 90s when you started getting the Jamaicans, the first, like what for us would have been like first generation Jamaicans. I know in New York, y'all got hit different. You know what I'm saying? But for us in Chicago, it was like the late 90s. You got the Nigerians and the Jamaicans and the uh, Vietnamese people in them. And a lot of us still support each other to this day. A lot of us, uh, you know, we kept them same ties, just like what Aja, like if I, I don't pay attention to it a lot, but when I started listening to Aja, like I could tell where you from in the city and I could tell your age because a lot of the, sorry, Aja, to talk yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you an old ass lady, Aja. Because <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The, the kids, like, they don't talk like us. They got a totally different accent and our elders is straight country. Yeah. So it's like we the middle generation. So like it was certain problems that we didn't have. Nobody went homeless. It wasn't no homelessness problem because you was related to half the block. So if if moms kicked you out, you could go sleep on you know said couch or something like that. You you or in somebody's basement. You weren't gonna be homeless. You weren't gonna be hungry if you didn't have no food. We ain't gonna give you no money, but you can come get a plate. You know what I'm saying? And it, it was so, to me, it's always going to be deep because I think a huge part of what happened was the grocery stores. And uh, uh, the grocery stores was that next branch of colonization because all of a sudden we was, not only was we dependent on them for food, but we was dependent on them for money because they hired us to work in the grocery stores. And if you know, you know, Aja, it, they, they shut down a lot of them Jews and Dominics from that era so all of a sudden the jobs are gone and a lot of these kids don't have the skills we have of gardening and things like that so now what do you have is food deserts yeah you understand so for us in our era you know we had those same country habits so we we enjoyed the city but we weren't dedicated. Like, the city wasn't all we had. We always had each other. And we knew we was Indian. Like, like I said, my great-grandmother, like, I have pictures with her. Like, literally, when I was a kid, like, six years old, when she moved to Chicago, right, she stayed with um my grandfather and my grandmother. So I was the little bad kid. I would run and take her um cane and hide it somewhere you know what i'm saying so i was always right there with my great grandmother so i know she spoke a different language i didn't know why she spoke a different language but i knew she spoke a different language and i knew that we was indian like to keep it a buck it's a um what is it it's a origin story that the catalba have and i didn't know it was a, a catalba origin story that i actually got from my great-grandmother on my grandfather's side. And until I ran across Catawba people last year and I told them what my grandmother told me, they were like, oh yeah, that's our origin story from where we come from. And it blew my mind because I'm, you know, growing up in these schools in the city, they got us thinking that our elders is not very intelligent, but they was handing down this culture to us. And when we ran across each other in the world, I latched on to that immediately. Like, yo, you know something about me that don't nobody else know outside of my family. So that culture is very important. So we went from knowing we was Indian to this day, like my auntie died like a couple months ago, my great auntie, 96 years old, you know, rest in peace. 
and literally at the funeral they were saying yeah we know we got this indian history because you know i'm talking about the genealogy with the elders but there's always an assumption of an african and what happened in the past 20 years is is it went from us knowing we was indian and having an assumption of an african to knowing we were african and having the assumption of an indian you see they they flipped it you know what I'm saying? And I swear to God, I ain't never heard nobody in my family talk about no Africans respect to them, but I don't know nothing about that. And, and I do my genealogy every day and I be looking for that African like Carmen San Diego. I ain't found him. You know what and I'm talking we would, about? We would know our we would know. Our people would definitely be able to tell us because the same way they told us we was Indian, like it's like they told us that. You feel me? So like that's the thing that's so interesting, you know what I mean? Um, I know I was, I was gonna follow up, but before she go, like I I just was reading this thing. Um, it was from the, the Northampton Bicentennial Committee, whatever this was, so like in 1976 or something like that. And they put out this this whole little brochure and talking about the history of Northampton, the essential Northampton. And they start talking about all the rivers. They named them a heron, the Nottaway. You feel me? They start talking about all the Indian, um, you know, tribes that the rivers is named after. But then they go past that and talk about these um, ri river Negroes with tribal lore. You know what I'm saying? Who were brought as slaves from Africa. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What are we talking about? Like, this is the type of tomfoolery that be going on. That guy yeah, like, that we in today. You feel me? So, that's how Mississippi is. You living in the place with Indian names, a longer Indian creek or Indian river, but you're a Negro. Make it make sense. <laughs> like, come on, bro. Listen, so last time I was, because, you know, we still have farmland in Mississippi, so I have to go down uh, often to farm. And there's an elder in the neighborhood. He's an elder farmer. And I asked him some for some things from his farm. And he was like, oh, you farm like an Indian. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> he was like, yeah, you farm like an Indian. And so we got into this conversation, and I was like, and I've been wanting to ask you, are you, um, do you have some Cherokee lineage? And he was like, you know, we we used to be Indian down here, but now we black. And this That's is exactly what my family he said. He said we used to be Indians, but now we, we black. I was like, wow. And I wow. think he might be in his late 70s. It's programming. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's programming from that Jesse Jackson there. And that's got to die. It has to die. So I got to get back to Chicago and this warrior mentality, I think, comes from Mississippi. At least that's just my um, idea. Do you think gang culture in Chicago is reflective of Indian warrior culture? And can you elaborate on your answer? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, gang culture is an outgrowth of rites of passage. See, boys have to have a rite of passage to go from being a boy to a man in warrior culture. See, back in the day, we protected the village. When you hear these stories about the Indians protecting the village, doing all these wild things, these wasn't old men. Like, and that's the same thing about the gang culture. You know what I mean? Back in the day, you wasn't a man unless you killed something. Like, I mean, to keep it a buck, we ain't too far from that right now in 2022. It's literally the exact same. It's in our DNA. You know, when I was young, it was about the block 
which in, which in my head translated to family. You know what I mean? And that was at a young age, like 12. It, you know, we started doing what we did in the city like at 11, 12 years old. But if you made it to 17, 18, you was an OG. So in my head, when I'm thinking loyalty, I'm thinking family loyalty, which is the block. But the money changed that with the with the crack era. And then, you know, as you get older, like I'm saying, you get 17, 18, people start having kids. You know, you, you relate to your homies, but you start to develop friend groups. And, you know, some people go off and do their own thing. You know what I mean? But we still, to this day, we still extended family. That's the tribe. Now, how can I put this? The young ones, they basically just proving themselves. And in this society, it got corrupted because they told us we wasn't allowed to do it. They put policy enforcers in the community, but the policy enforcers don't serve justice. To, to give you a real story, like when I was a shorty, my best friend, little sister, had a situation. And we went straight to old boy front porch. You understand what I'm saying? And he, we I couldn't have been no older than 14. And there was a couple of us out there, and his mother was out there, you know, screaming for his life. You know, the police don't move like that. You know, but at the same point, the police are not really doing justice. The police is just, quote unquote, keeping the po keeping the peace. So we still, to this day, having problems in our community that we have always had to resolve ourselves, but they're not allowing us a full toolbox to, to resolve those problems. That's why when you look at the drug abuse and, you know, a lot of things that's going on in the community, it's because the people in the community are not allowed a full toolbox to solve their own problems. My so can I ask this question? I want you to keep going, but what, sure, what, needs, what needs to be in the, in the toolbox? Uh, people talk about yeah. the bat. People talk about Batman versus the Joker. And over time... What they finally figured out, and I think the Joker in the comic books has said to him was, is the only reason I'm still free to do all this is because you won't do what you need to to get me off the streets. They locked the Joker up for a little while, and then they put the Joker out. The Joker killed 50 people. What do they do? He wrap them up with a batarang and put them back in jail. <laughs> some, I got you. Some, some people just don't need to be there anymore. Mm. You know, that's, that's not... No, no, it's cool. That's what I'm saying. See, this is this is why we had the conversations, you know, because I you talking about a, a type of okay, like back in the day where I grew up, I was young. They had a vigilante type of mentality. That's where you got the what was it, the guardian guardian angels, right? For what they was worth, right? I, I'm not saying they was all good. You feel me? Can't say it was all bad because the whole mentality still was like, well, hey, nobody's here protecting us. So we're going to go and organize and, you know what I'm saying, protect and, you feel me? And that was a real thing that was would go on because when I, I read something about my grandfather when he was growing up, because he wound up being, you know, um, they wrote about him in the paper. He was the first, you know, quote unquote, black principal at Benjamin Franklin High School. So when, you know, they wrote about him, they, he was interviewed and he talked about growing up and having to, you know, grow up in Harlem and how he had to protect, you know, um, his friends and people from the gangs and stuff like that, how they had to organize and do things like that. So this is a thing that happens where people have to kind of respond to some of the, you know, the, the I guess the recklessness 
that goes on in our community, you feel me? And see, like, as a tribe, we can regulate that with tribunal, with justice, you feel me? But a lot of that, because growing up, see, growing up, the police didn't, you know, I'm 44, right? The police didn't have a presence in my neighborhood until a certain, you know, really until the whole Central Park 5 thing happened. And then it was like, all of a sudden, oh no, you know, we gotta, we gotta get these people. They wilding, you know what I'm saying? We gotta the, crack the down. The police didn't like, even play that role, bro. I grew up like four blocks from the um, police station and I swear to God, police never rolled down my block, literally. Four blocks mm. from the police station. We never, I think I had to call police one time in my life and it took them probably like two hours to get that. <laughs> like, like that's not the, and that's something that a lot of people finally picked up on recently is that's not the role police play in these communities. They not there for justice. You know what I'm saying? Like when such and such got a problem with such and such, it's up to the community to figure out how to resolve that. You know what I mean? And that's not really what police do. You know, when you when we talk about these young men, and this is just my idea, kind of based off of what my father used to say. My father, um, he was born in the 30s. And when my son was younger, he was like, keep my grandson in sports because men need sports. And so just thinking about how that connects to Choctaw culture, it's Taboli, which is um, stickball. You know that was war. That mm -hmm. was a warrior game that our um, that our young men and some women actually played. And also, going back to agriculture and Choctaw culture, the women were the farmers and the men were the hunters. Yep. And so I think if we can get our boys back to that cultural normalcy of hunting and our girls back to the cultural normalcy of farming, but get our men out there hunting and get them out there playing stickball or whatever kind of sport can get that energy out, I really think we can see some progress. We used to play football. The the brothers yeah. and the folks. I remember playing football in the street. Just, we would meet up at Calumet in the 90s. We would meet up at Calumet and we play football. Mm. And you see, that's a lot of what happened in between the late 90s and after that was very synthetic. That was not a natural progression. You understand? Like, of course, getting jumped is natural. Getting it, you know, you might get stabbed, but like when them guns came into the communities and all of that, and see, let me pick up right here because this is what I wanted to give y'all. My generation was trained by the OGs. Me and my best friend, they took us out. They literally took us out and they showed us how to gangbang. But what happened was, is they locked all the OGs up. And I never forget when they did that. And they did that in multiple communities. Like they locked up a lot of the OGs. A lot of the OGs got strung out from that, that, that crack. So the young kids, see it's something Ozzy, you might have heard of this because you from the city. It's called Young Bull Syndrome. And they, they figured that out from elephants because they killed off, you know, with the ivory tusks and all of that, they had killed off all of the adult male elephants. And what happened with the baby bull elephants was is they started killing each other and they started raping the female elephants. That's the same thing they figured out with us in the streets is when they pulled all the OGs off the block, that's when you started getting everybody killer. That's when you started getting a lot of problems that it was nobody there to resolve because nobody in the streets had respect because all the OGs is gone. Hmm. 
You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I mean, literally the the time I'm talking about. I mean, we didn't play um because I know stickball was closer to lacrosse. We didn't play that, but we played football. You know what I mean? And yeah, over time that just died, man. And, and it was not normal. It was synthetic. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely I gotta sit with that. Gotta definitely sit with that. I know Damon has some um, questions about some more about your background. Yeah, I was gonna say I know um, you grew up um, studying Islam. Is that correct? I want to make sure I'm, I'm accurate. My father was um, well, not my real father. My stepfather was in the Nation of Islam. Got it. Um, and like for me, like I grew up around Islam, not like really going 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 to any practice on a regular. But my sister's father, he's from Sierra Leone, and he came um, studying Islam. I was living right down the block from the um, Malcolm X mosque over there on 16th and Lennox, you feel me? So he actually took me there one time, um, going with him when I was young. But, you know, later on, I actually started getting more into Islam myself, just on a personal level, not really through the nation or nothing like that. But the question I had was, well, how did your stepfather's Muslim culture affect how you saw your Indian roots. Well, the first thing we, we got to say is y'all already know Mississippi is heavily Christian. So, you know what I'm saying? My mom's family is Christian and my stepfather was Nation of Islam. So in my household, like I got the Islam, the Nation of Islam from his side and I got the Christianity from my mother's family. And to me, I saw that it was really the same box. You know what I'm saying? Like, and they're not really complete cultures. When we talking about Indian culture, the Chata is a um, monotheistic religion. You know, the Chata have a God. It's same thing, matter of fact, with the Natchez. I don't know about the Chickasaw, but I'm pretty sure if the Choctaw are monotheistic like we are, then the Chickasaw are probably monotheistic as well, right? And on top of that, we have our foods. We have our songs that we sing. We have the way we raise our children. The Indian cultures are full cultures here, right? So I got to talk about the way it is in the United States. In the United States, like to give you an example, then like it neither Islam or Christianity here are full cultures unto themselves. Like if I go to um, Afghanistan, and I go to a Muslim restaurant in Afghanistan, it's gonna be like rices, grains, things like that. If I go to Morocco and I ask for, you know, obviously you're gonna get an Islamic restaurant, it's Mediterranean food. But in Chicago, if you remember, there was something called Doc's Fish. And that was Nation of Islam. And then you got the Salam restaurant because they was trying to get us off of the port. So if you peep, the Muslims in the Nation of Islam in America, and especially in Chicago, they went heavy on the fish. That's Indian culture. Like, they weren't selling kebabs and couscous. They selling bean pies. Bean pies is Indian. Beans is Indian culture. Fish is Indian culture. So what happened is, and what you pick up on, and once I noticed it in Islam, I noticed the same thing in Christianity that both of them came over here as incomplete cultures. And what happened is, is they, they instilled them things in us and we basically filled in the cracks in Islam and Christianity in America. So in 2022, you have like the uh, soul vegan 
Hebrew Israelite restaurant. Israelite culture is not vegan culture. You know what I'm saying? You got, like I'm saying, the Salam restaurant. It might be under a, um, a, a five-pointed star in the crescent moon, but the food that they really serving in there, they might now be selling kebabs and all that, but that started off with our food. So now it's getting rounded off and they're making it into something that it really wasn't. So we had our own cultures, and I noticed at a real young age that they weren't complete cultures. Like the things that they brought over to us was, was basically broken and we fixed it and we don't realize it. We put our souls into these things. I know you know what a black church sound like. You know what I'm saying? And then same thing about Nation of Islam music. It's NOI cast. Shit, man, the Nation of Gods and Nerves. What would hip hop be without the Nation of Gods and Nerves? But what would the Nation of Gods and Nerves be without them Indians in New York? Mm. So let's talk. You see what I'm saying is like, we, we have these things that were insinuated on top of us, but at, at the root of it all is us bringing our best into something that's not really ours. And because I had both of them in my household, I kind of saw it. You know what I mean? That perspective Woo! you're talking about, you know, I just, um, before you even go, that perspective you're talking about, that's something that I always draw, draw because, you know, because I grew up around, you know, my sister father being from Sierra Leone, and then people will go and say, oh, well, that's where your people are from, right? People, oh, yeah, you look straight. Like, you know, somebody tried to say, oh, you look straight like somebody from West Africa. Like, the look means whatever. But culturally, I know that it's completely different. <laughs> you feel me? It's completely different. So, yeah, like that perspective makes a difference. You know what I mean? But go ahead, Ozzy, you got Nah, Seg just dropped some. Man, that was some wisdom. That was some wisdom right there. I can't wait till this episode comes out. Um, <laughs> so, Seg, what are some things your elders told you as a child that you wish you would have listened to? You know what I really wish I listened to? I, they told me to bring my ass in the crib. I wish I'd have stayed in the crib. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to stay out, man. I mean, going back to our culture, man, Indian culture is family culture. You know what I mean? And, you know, when you get in them streets and, you know, you start doing what you're doing out there, like, case in point, my neighborhood, Blackstone, right? And my cousin, Raphael, he like my little brother. We adults now. But I remember when he his hood was folks. So this is my little cousin walk up to me. Hey, cuz, I'm folks now. And I punched him square in the chest as hard as I could. No lie, he will tell you this. I, I punched him in the chest as hard as I could because, you know, he basically just flipped ops. You know what I'm saying? And that's what you realize is through the gang culture, like, you, you have people that's related on both sides of this. You know, now, as as adults, we don't relate like that no more. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I couldn't come to his hood. He could come to mine because my reputation stood over that. But be, also because of my reputation, I couldn't go to his hood. You know, I, I walk, you know, straight into my auntie front door and I don't go outside over there. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, that's, that's really the biggest thing, man. You know, if I'd have stayed with the family, we would have stayed, you know, doing the family stuff, roller skating and but you know it's a huge like a eight year part of my life that i dedicated to things that i shouldn't have and you know when i came out of it i had to really play catch up you know what i'm saying and get back into the groove and you know in the meantime some of my aunties just died and you know because we had a family reunions like you know i was able to pick up on certain things that i lost 
and you know because of it it gave me my love for my family that i have right now that they see like you know we have a family cookbook you know what i'm saying and you, a lot of the history is coming my way because they, they feel the love i have for it but the reason i have it is because i went through a period in my life when i was alone and the reason <laughs> i was alone is because i chose the streets i chose things that i shouldn't have chose you know that's powerful now nah, that's powerful bro I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep that really real you know um you know i work with young kids and you know I, you know I, I, didn't, I didn't get caught up in um any gang shit i never did get caught up in gang shit i definitely leaned on my family because that's the part that you mentioned it's like you know you still gotta have something for protection sometimes out there you feel me and my family would definitely be what i would draw on but i still did get you know caught up in a lot of just you know Sometimes careless shit, just chasing, you know what I'm saying? Chasing dreams, you know, being young. And looking back, it's like I didn't have to do none of that. You feel me? I had, like, so much there for me. You get what I'm saying? And, um, you know, I'm definitely trying to pay that forward to my sons where I can let them see what they have ahead of them. And they don't have to chase, you know, what's out there in the streets. Or chase just, you know, the, the fast life and things like that. You feel me? Like, they understand, like, you know, it's, it's like they really, really are fortunate. You feel me? So let me give you two. Let me give you two on that one. You just reminded me of something that did change my life. Like, I remember one of the homies moved out of the projects and when he moved out of the projects, he had a son and he would always um, take his son and he would go park in front of the projects in the car with his son and he would like tell him stories about things that happened when he was growing up and in the process i think it got really embedded to his son that he didn't have to do that type of stuff and his son actually became a physician and then the you 100 percent right we did not have to be out there i forgot the other thing i was going to tell you but yeah man you literally just and i i never the other thing matter of fact was when my grandmother died and my uh stepfather came to pick me up and you know i was high i ain't gonna lie i was high as hell and I, I was 15 years old 14 15 years old and my stepfather he never came to pick me up we didn't really have that good of a relationship and he you know i'm like the hell he, you know i'm looking at him i'm, I'm standing there with the homies what the hell he doing over here right and he yeah. like hey, hey meet you you gotta come with me you know what i'm saying and I get in the car with them and they take me to the hospital, come to find out I'm high as hell and my grandmother died. And like everything that she had ever said to me, like concretized itself in my head at that point. Like, and the one thing she said to me at her point, they were just like, just make sure he finished high school. And once again, what happens in your head is I translated it to finish in college because I'm like, well, my grandfather didn't finish high school. I, I don't think my grandmother finished high school. So in they head, like that was the highest level of education you could have. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna make it something bigger and I'm gonna translate it to what it is nowadays. And I, I it was just very important to me to finish college because I knew that that was like the one thing that my grandmother wanted to do. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So yeah, that part. No, that's important. Man. That's important. Um, so let's let's end it on this food, man. We ain't we ain't really getting to the food like that. So we want to talk about this food now. So you invited us to a backyard blues juke. What food are you serving? First of all, we gotta have barbecue, man. I didn't got so good with my barbecue ribs, man. F falling off the bone, you know how they say. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna do my famous barbecue ribs. You know what I mean? I know my mom's. If I could get her to hook up a macaroni and cheese for you, I'll make the jambalaya. You know what I mean? Get you some um, sausage and chicken uh, jambalaya. You know, I gotta have a peach cobbler out there in the drink in the in the drink. You know what I'm saying? There's some greens. You know, some watermelon and some fruit for the kids while they running around the yard. Nice. You know, the simple stuff. Okay, okay. So you talk about them ribs, though. You said beef ribs, right? Yes, sir. All right. What's the marinade? What kind of marinade you working with? You know, I just do the regular old mesquite, man. Um, it's the smoke that does it, and the thing, you know, um, beef ribs, right? They tough. So the way you got to get it to fall off the bone is you got to smoke them for like hours, bro. You either got to smoke them or you got to have them in the oven at like a, a real low heat to get them soft before you actually barbecue them. It take hours to get uh, beef ribs right. Yeah, normally like the best way, like, well, not even the best way. Let me say, because everybody got preference, but going to the way you mentioned in the oven, like just braising them and then getting mm -hmm. them soft and then you can really, you know what I'm saying? go back to putting that, you know, that hard kind of sear back on it at the end. You know what I'm saying? That's what you want. But mm -hmm. it's, 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 I think it's a, a million ways to skin a cat, you feel me? <laughs> you ain't eating cat, but we're going to still eat regardless. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, my, my goal is is to make sure you don't need no barbecue sauce. Like, I want you to be able to take it right off the grill and eat it. You know, you don't need no, no knife. You can just put it in your mouth and it tastes good. That's all. Well, I know our audience is full. This conversation has been beautiful. I definitely appreciate you coming on the show. And then you said, Michi, man, I was like, that ain't nothing but an Indian. <laughs> That's a Chicago Indian right there, Michi Moochie. Yep. <laughs> you know that's really? some Indian stuff right there because that's like a common Michi and Moochie are some yep. common names. Uh, but thank you so much for being on the show. I definitely appreciate it. And this has been a wealth of information. And um, I just appreciate it so much. Hey, man, yeah, I appreciate y'all, man. Yeah, before you go, I don't want you to leave before because you mentioned Mississippi too. I don't think everybody know where to even get Mississippi One, man. You gotta let people know where to get your stuff at, man. They all, on, they all on the BCU. I think I might have to um, re-upload them, or we got to figure out some way because I did Mississippi Part One and Mississippi Part Two on um, Top Cat Channel, and I did uh, Aztec Bill. And there was a reason I did the Aztec bill first, the Nawa bill first, is because it's documented that those was dark-skinned people too. And because there's such similarities between all of our cultures. But I, what, I, what I've been trying to do is I want people to not feel like they have to go to Mexico, like to feel that culture. I want them to know, just like in Mississippi part one, um, I send you the links. It, you know, I went over all of the, the mounds that are um, in the Americas. You know, you got the Adena culture, the Hopewell mounds, and it's like three other ones. I can't think of the names of them. And it's like tens of thousands of mounds all over the, the North American in the United States. So we, it, God, God forbid you forget Naniwaya for us to be Choctaw. You know what I mean? So, so it's like we, we got a holy land here. We got mounds here. We have everything we need right in Mississippi, Alabama, all the way up to Illinois, all over East to Carolinas. So, you know, we, we don't got to know. We ain't got to go nowhere else. You know, this is home. Let's just clean up home. Let's make it nice again. That's a fact. 
fact. Well, again, just like I just said, you know, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Great dope conversation. You already know, man. It's honor to call you cuz, you know what I'm saying? And uh, yes, sir. look forward to chopping it up some more. You already know. Yeah. All right, family.